We've all rebelled against God in different ways and to a different extent. We all need his compassion. We all need his forgiveness in order to be made right with him. And there is hope because our sovereign God is also compassionate. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Why did Daniel record his prayer? What's so important about his plea? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series, 70 Years and 70 Weeks. We'll look at just how the prayer of Daniel reveals that the restoration of Israel to the land occurred in answer to Daniel's prayer, just as the prophet Jeremiah had said it would happen. You'll discover that there's a genuine connection between the prayers of God's people and the events that take place in history. The pattern you'll learn is simple. The promises of the Word of God should drive you to prayer. Does it drive you to prayer? Let's join Tom Pennington and find out more on The Word Unleashed. By the way, notice in verse 4, Daniel makes his appeal to God to restore the people to the land, not on the basis of all the Israelites, but specifically on behalf of the faithful, true believers in God, those who love God and show their love by their obedience to His commands. Because in the end, obedience is just love demonstrated. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14? If you love me, what? You will You'll keep my commandments. So, this adoration, if I could summarize it, focuses on God's greatness and His goodness. The most profound theological understanding eventually brings us back to the simplest kindergarten prayer. God is great. God is good. Now that brings us out of adoration into the confession of sin, verses 5 to 14. Now let me just make one point here that's very important before we begin to look at the prayer, the the confession itself. Throughout this prayer, Daniel identified himself with and associates himself with the people of Israel. And so he confesses not only his own sin, but also the sin of the people of Israel. That's what he said in verse 20, as though it were his own. But make sure you understand what Daniel was not saying. Daniel was not saying that he had been part of the rebellious, idolatrous majority who had brought God's wrath upon the nation and sent them to exile. And he was not claiming that he was personally guilty for the sin of others. That is a very important point. Unfortunately, Today, there are some well-intentioned people who are using Daniel 9 to say that you and I can actually be guilty for the sin, the sins of other people. Folks, that is contrary to the clear teaching of the Old Testament. Read Ezekiel 18. Over and over again, God says the soul that sins is the soul that dies. I'm not going to deal with you based on the sins of your father's or the sins of your children. 
I'm going to deal with you based on your own sins. That is an inviolable principle of Scripture. I am never guilty for the sins of someone else, only my own. Daniel prays the way he does here because he had experienced the result of God's wrath upon the nation because of the nation's sin. And so he confessed Israel's sin as if it were his own in order to intercede on their behalf, to plead for God's forgiveness and God's restoration of the nation. One other observation about this prayer that makes me feel a little better about my own prayers You'll notice as we go through it that Daniel goes back and forth between the second and third person. As you read this prayer, sometimes he addresses God directly in the second person, and then in the same prayer, he addresses him in the third person as him. That happens to me, and obviously it happened to Daniel. It also happens, by the way, to Ezra in Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 to 15. So let's consider then the pattern of Daniel's confession. And and I'm going to use Daniel's confession here as a pattern for our own confession. So as you see Daniel confessing his sin and the sins of his people, see it as a pattern for how our confession should run. First of all, true confession of sin begins by identifying sin's true nature. We see this in verses 5 to 6. There are six different aspects of Israel's sin described here. Notice verse 5, we have sinned. The Hebrew word means to miss the mark. In fact, it's used literally that way in Judges 20 verse 16 when it talks about 700 Benjamites who could sling a stone at a hair and not what? Miss. Not miss. They didn't miss the target. Sin, using this word, is like missing the target that God has set. What God requires of us, the target he demands that we hit, we miss. Paul puts it this way in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's like an arrow aimed at the target and it, it falls before it gets to the target. It's to miss the mark. He goes on to say, we have committed iniquity. The Hebrew word iniquity comes from a word that means to bend or to twist. It describes sin as twisted, as perverted. Think of it this way. The idea is when we sin, we leave the straight road that God has set, the path of righteousness, and we make our paths crooked. That's the idea. Another word he uses in verse 5 is we have acted wickedly. The word means to be guilty of a crime, guilty of a crime against God or others. What was Israel's crime? Notice the next one, we have rebelled. We have refused to submit to God's authority. By the way, as you think about this, Don't just think about Daniel and the children of Israel. Think about your own confession. This is how you're to identify your own sin. Lord, I missed the mark. You set the target, and I I didn't even hit it. I haven't come close. My my sin is, is like leaving the straight path you've set 
and pursuing crooked paths. My sin is a crime against you. It is rebellion against your authority. And then he says, we have rebelled, and here's how we've rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. They simply refuse to obey God's commands and His ordinances. Ordinances is God's authoritative declarations about what behavior is acceptable and what behavior is not acceptable. In verse, verses 11 and 23, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the law of God. But it was obviously rebellion against all of Scripture as well. Verse 6, moreover, my family gets on to me all the time for using that word, moreover. But there you go, it's a biblical word. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Now, notice he's, he's changing here. In addition to the written word, in grace and mercy, God also sent his servants, the prophets, to call his people to repentance. We read about that in Jeremiah. By the way, notice again the clear reference to inspiration, your servants who spoke in your name are under your authority. And the prophets here, we're told, spoke both to the leaders and to the people, and how did the people respond? We have not listened. Clearly, that didn't include Daniel, didn't include his three friends, didn't include other faithful believers throughout the nation, but as a whole, the nation refused to listen to God's gracious command and God's invitation to repent. You see, not only had they not obeyed God's law, but when God sent his prophets to call their disobedience to their attention, they didn't listen then either. They were twice guilty. Just as with Daniel, when you and I make true confession of sin, it always includes a recognition of sin's true nature. It's missing the mark. It's a twisted perversion. It's a crime against God. It is rebellion against God's rightful authority in my life. It is a refusal to listen to God's Word. It is a refusal to repent when confronted. True confession continues by accepting sin's just consequences, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. In the original, there's, a, there's an emphatic contrast. Literally, it's translated like this, to you, O Lord, is the righteousness, but to us is shame of face. Shame of face here is the disgrace that Israel experienced in the destruction of their homeland, of their temple, and in their captivity in a foreign land. And that open shame that they were subjected to continued even to the day that Daniel prayed this prayer. Notice this shame, verse 7 says, extended to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, so the north and the south, those who are nearby, those who are far away, in all the countries to which you have driven them. Israel's sin continued to bring disgrace and therefore shame upon the entire nation wherever they were, whether it was the northern tribes in Assyria or the southern tribes in Babylon or others who fled to Egypt. Wherever they were, they enjoyed shame of face. Verse 7 goes on to say, "...because of their unfaithful deeds..." which they have committed against you. 
Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. Daniel freely admitted that the shame that Israel was experiencing was fully deserved and was just. Biblical confession of sin always looks like this. You want to know whether your confession is genuine? Ask yourself, are you good with whatever God does? And are you willing to say, whatever you do, God is fair. Whatever you do is just. I plead for mercy, but whatever you do is just. This is David in Psalm 51, verse 4. So against you, you only, he says, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Daniel was accepting the just consequences of sin. He's saying, look, we have shame of face, and you know what? We deserve it. Thirdly, true confession also includes hoping in sin's only remedy. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. In Hebrew, both compassion and forgiveness are plural. Sounds pretty awkward in English, but literally it reads like this, to the Lord our God belong compassions and forgivenesses. The plural may be uh, in Hebrew, there's a plural of intensity. You, you make something plural when you want to talk about how great it is. So it may be saying God's compassion is great and his forgiveness is great. Or the plural may refer to God's multiple repeated acts of compassion and forgiveness. Again and again and again, he says, God, you have shown us compassion and you have shown us forgiveness. This God is who you are. And, of course, all of Scripture and our own experience testifies to that, doesn't it? God was willing to extend compassion and forgiveness. Notice how he puts it, even though Israel had rebelled against him. Folks, that is our hope. That's why we come confessing our sins, because to the Lord our God belong compassions and forgivenesses. We've all rebelled against God in different ways and to a different extent. We all need his compassion. We all need his forgiveness in order to be made right with him. And there is hope because our sovereign God is also compassionate and forgiving. Remember his declaration of his own nature? In Exodus, he says, I am gracious and compassionate. And then he adds, not only am I abounding in steadfast love, but I am the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God says, that's my nature. That's just who I am. Listen, if you're here tonight, and I don't want to assume everyone here tonight is a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight, you are a sinner like the rest of us. And your sins deserve not only temporal judgment from God, but eternal judgment from God. And that is, in fact, what your sins will receive, according to the Scripture, according to Jesus Christ himself, unless you repent and believe in him, unless you repent of your sins and put your faith in the perfect life of Jesus Christ, lived in the place of all who would believe in him, to satisfy the just demands of God, then he died, and he died in the place to satisfy the justice of God against all who would believe in him. And then God raised him from the dead as the testimony that he'd accepted that sacrifice. And we're told that 
There is no other name, the book of Acts says, given under heaven whereby we must be saved, rescued from our sins. Jesus himself said, no man comes into the Father but by me. I plead with you tonight to cry out for the compassion and forgiveness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. That's your only hope. It's my only hope. True confession, hopes in sin's only remedy. It's the nature of God and his compassion and forgiveness. True confession also includes admitting God's faithfulness in judgment. Verses 10 to 13. Verses 10 and 11 make very similar points to what we've already seen. He says, Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed, transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. That's, that's essentially a restatement of what we've already seen. And then he turns in verse 11 to the consequences of their sin. So, the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Israel had sinned against God in the ways described. Therefore, God had carried out the curse and the oath. The oath is simply the judgment that God had sworn he would bring. That's his oath. Notice God poured this out on the nation. The curse God brought against the nation of Israel didn't come in a trickle. It came in a flood. Specifically, the curse and the sworn judgment were, notice, written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. The specifics of God's curse for disobedience are described in two passages in the Old Testament. One of those is Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 39. The other is Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68. If I could summarize it, I would say this. The curse that God promised, that he swore for disobedience by his people, included such things as a lack of rain, poor crops, rampant disease, infertility, being defeated by their enemies, and worst of all, it involved being exiled from the land of promise. Verse 12, thus he has confirmed, literally in the Hebrew, he has caused to stand his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. Yahweh had promised in the law that if Israel broke the covenant they made with him, he would bring very specific judgment upon them. And Daniel reaffirms or affirms that God didn't lie. And the great calamity, he calls it, that God had predicted, the exile of the nation had in fact come. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Yahweh spelled out in explicit gory, scary, and unnerving detail the multiple disasters he would inflict upon the people who turned away from him. Daniel's point is that Yahweh has been faithful in his anger. He has inflicted upon unfaithful Israel precisely what he said he would. Davis goes on to say this, we can forget this. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, and forget that there is a dark side to that faithfulness. God will always do what God said he would do. 
Notice verse 12 says, Israel's great calamity was unique. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. You say, now, why would he say that? I mean, obviously, many nations had experienced defeat at the hands of their enemies, the destruction of their homes, the destruction of their country, even exile. So what made Israel unique? Well, it's because those other countries, in their case, their gods were lifeless idols, completely unable to defend them. But in Israel's case, they were the people who belonged to the true and living God, and the true and living God had allowed His city and His temple to be destroyed and His people to be carried off into exile. Nothing like this had ever happened before. But no one should be surprised because it was exactly what God said would happen. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Daniel admitted that Israel was getting exactly what it deserved and what God had promised. He confirmed that God was both faithful and just in the chastening that he'd brought. When you and I come in confession of our sin, we have to admit God's faithfulness even in his judgment. God, it's what you said. There's one more part of true confession, and that is cultivating godly sorrow over sin. Remarkably, even though God had allowed this great calamity to come upon Israel, as a whole, the nation had not repented. Look at verse 13. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. That's what Israel didn't do. But by explaining what Israel should have done, Daniel describes for us in Old Testament terms what repentance or godly sorrow for sin actually looks like. Look at that verse again. First of all, he says, seek the grace of God, the favor of God. The Hebrew is very picturesque. Literally, it says, smooth the face of Yahweh. You get the idea. He's angry we approach him and seek his favor, seek his grace, and see his face smooth out. Two, turn from your sin, turn from your iniquity. And three, give attention to God's truth, that is, listen and obey God's word. Now, do you see those three components there in verse 13? To seek God's favor is a beautiful description of faith. I mean, that's how faith's described, right, in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and what? A rewarder of those who seek him. So, to seek God's favor is faith. Turning from sin, the second one, and giving attention to God's Word are equally fitting descriptions of repentance. Daniel admitted that although that's what true faith and repentance looked like, looked like, the nation had not responded to God's judgment in that way. The people of Israel were unchanged, they were unbroken, they were unrepentant, even in exile. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. It's an interesting Hebrew expression. Literally it says, the Lord watched over the calamity and brought it on us. The idea is that God 
kept a watch on this disaster just in case he had to use it. And then he realized he did. Because after sending prophet after prophet, plea after plea, the people didn't respond. The judgment from God did not come because God is capricious or somehow delights in inflicting pain on people. Verse 14 says, For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel says, listen, our crimes demanded justice, and God has only done what was right. There's a heart of repentance. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that was part two of 70 Years and 70 Weeks. Tom will bring you part three next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.